Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Any Given You podcast. As always, I'm your host, Michael Megan, and we have an awesome show for you today. But before we get into that, I'd like to remind everyone that if you're enjoying our content, please make sure to give us a rating and review. And if you've already done that, make sure to tell some of your friends about the podcast available on all major podcast platforms and follow us on Instagram as well as our Any Given You Facebook page and group. Welcome to season two. It has been exactly a year since launching this podcast. We launched on January the 28th of 2021, and we have produced over 60 episodes in season one, totaling over 3,000 combined plays, both domestic and foreign, and I am so thrilled to be back. I had to catch a break. After that national championship game, as the season was winding down, the craziness of bowl mania, bowl season, man, that was tiring. I was exhausted, tired, had work considerations, you had family, it was the holiday season, and then the big emotional dump that I had from seeing my Georgia Bulldogs getting it done for the first time in over four decades, a truly unforgettable experience. And I apologize, but I really just had to take a knee. That game was so incredible, so impactful in so many ways that I still don't think I I even fully grasp all the ways that this, this game between Alabama and Georgia for the 2021 National Championship has really impacted not only the, the state of Georgia, not only the two fan bases, but college football in general. It was a keystone game it was a a real blip if you will in the in the history of college football a, a big one it it shows up it is going to show up on the college football historical radar for not only this generation but for generations to come and so really what i want to kick off season 2 talking about because i think we'd be remiss if we didn't is what did this game tell us what did it teach us what can we take away? I, do, I don't want to really get into the weeds of breaking down the national championship on a field and tactical level like we did for the preview. I want to hit on some bigger picture repercussions of, of what happened in Indiana, what we saw, the sort of events that have been set in motion by Georgia upsetting the power balance between them and Alabama, winning their first national title in 41 years. The first thing that sticks out to me about this game from a big perspective is the confidence boost that it gives this Georgia program. And I don't think that that can be undersold or downplayed. We knew that the dogs were a premier team, a highly talented team, an elite level team that was always in the hunt, always in the contention, always the bridesmaid, but never the bride. Well, they finally walk down the aisle and they win one, right? What does this do to transform the kind of the confidence, the DNA of that squad from thinking they can get it done to knowing they can get it done? In simpler terms, right? I, I was thinking about this the other day. They they killed the bear, if you want to, or the elephant, but I was thinking they 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 killed the bear. One of my favorite movies growing up came out 1997, 1998, whatever it was. It was called The Edge, starring Anthony Hopkins, had Alec Baldwin in it. Brief synopsis of the movie. If you're not familiar with this one, I highly recommend you put that 
that at the top of your queue and check it out. But plane goes down in, in uh, the Canadian wilderness. They survive the plane crash, get out. And the antagonist in this film is a Kodiak bear that is stalking these three survivors from the plane crash. And all film long, it's chasing them around, actually eats one of the uh, folks that escaped from the plane, plane, and it's down to Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. And finally, there is nowhere else to go. They have to confront this bear. And Anthony Hopkins tells Alec Baldwin's character, I think his name was Bob, hey, what one man can do, another man can do. I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. I'm going to kill the bear. And they just repeated this and, and, and psyched themselves up to this point where they truly believed they were going to kill this massive bear with nothing more than these spears that they fashioned from you know the, the forest there. And lo and behold, of course, they do in the film's climax. They kill the bear. That's what this, this felt like to me when you see Georgia backed into the corner, no other options, actually down to the Crimson Tide at one point you know, in late in the game, in the fourth quarter, after the Stetson Bennett fumble. And finally, it was just, hey, we are going to kill the bear, right? So the big plays are made. They go down the field. They score. They seize the momentum. Keely Ringo's interception ices it. They killed the bear. They did it. They realized what, 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 what team, what man can do, what one man can do, another man can do, what one team can do, another team can do. They saw Clemson beat the Crimson Tide. They've seen Ohio State take them out in 2014. They just had to believe that they were able to do it. So I believe that they killed the bear and finally got over that hump. The other thing that I think that this win by Georgia killed is the is a myth, a, a, a wives' tale, sort of a lie in modern college football that we see right now. And that is only elite quarterback play will win you national titles. Well, I'm sorry to say, I love Stetson Bennett. Huge fan of the kid. I think he's one of the greatest feel-good stories in all of college football history, maybe all of sports history. But to say that he plays at an elite level would be a gigantic stretch. And honestly, uh, if I'm going with the analyst in in my heart, it would be irresponsible for me to say that. It is He is not an elite-level quarterback. He has elite-level weapons. There is an elite-level roster around him. There's a great coaching staff around him. And from an intangibles perspective, I don't think you can really you know, downplay what he means to this Georgia program. He clearly had the locker room, and that is just – that's awesome. That's worth its weight in gold. But no, he's not an elite-level quarterback. Speaking of him, let's talk about the other quarterbacks that were in the college football playoff. Is Cade McNamara an elite quarterback? I don't think so. Is Desmond Ritter an elite quarterback? No, I think he's good. He's a good G5 level quarterback, but not an elite level quarterback. If you shop the yard around the NCAA, around FBS, around college football this year, how many elite level quarterbacks even won a conference championship? Alabama obviously won the SEC title game in Atlanta. So, okay, there's one with Bryce Young. Uh, if you want to make the argument for Kenny Pickett winning the ACC as an elite-level quarterback, okay, that's fine. I also think that he's an extremely experienced quarterback, having been at the helm of that program for like nine years. But if you really shop the yard and you take a look around, C.J. Stroud didn't win the Big Ten. The Pac-12 was won by Utah with Cam Rising at the helm, I think he's a very talented quarterback, but I, again, it would be an extreme stretch 
to say that he's an elite level quarterback. And then the Big 12 was played between Oklahoma State and Baylor. Neither one of those teams have an elite level quarterback on their roster. The one that does with Caleb Williams was not playing that week. So Again, I feel like this is a huge lie in college football that only elite quarterbacks are going to win you national titles and conference titles, and that's what it takes. I'll, I'll say this. Let's amend this. When all things are equal, quarterback play and elite skill talent greatly increases the likelihood of winning. When all things are equal. The all things are equal, That the part of that I'm talking about is – the line of scrimmage, as long as as long as football has a line of scrimmage and we are not playing flag football or seven on seven, those are all the other parts that have to be equal before you can just say, well, the elite quarterback play and the elite, you know, uh, skill roster on the outside, the elite talent you have out there, that's what's going to get it done for you. That, that gives you the advantage. Well, sure, yeah, that may be true when all other things are equal. What we saw Georgia do this year, how they won games, they controlled the line of scrimmage, period, flat out. They beat you up from the inside out and were too physical and had such a combination of size and speed and great playmaking ability to go along with that physicality that they were able to win a national title doing it, quote unquote, the old way, playing defense, establishing the run, stopping the run, playing field position, having a game manager at quarterback, they were able to do that because they created inequality inside the trenches. They had overmatch. It was too much, too overwhelming. And you saw it eventually catch up with Alabama in the rematch in Indianapolis. And that game honestly went the way that we kind of all expected it to go the first time. So when all things are equal, yeah, I agree. The quarterback play and the skill play is what gives you the edge. But if you can create an imbalance with what you do up front and surround it with enough talent, you can win at a high level. The Dogs' five-star roster, what I was most impressed with and happy as a Georgia fan personally, the Georgia fan in me was happy to see the five-star talent finally playing like it, finally expressing themselves like that led by that two-star quarterback, Stetson Bennett, and talking about him having the locker room, the team believing in him, the the moxie, the toughness, the grit, everything that it took to get to that point. And I think it just it all culminated beautifully for Georgia, huge impact for the program, for both programs and really all programs in college football because the ripple effect has begun and the dominoes are falling in all different directions because of this game. I want to talk about Alabama for a minute. Alabama's young roster has gained, I think, invaluable experience from this game, from what they went through this year, sort of the ups and downs, having to battle through in a way that I think will likely pay big-time dividends in 2022. This team this year has a real 2019 Alabama sort of feel to it. And we all saw what happened with Alabama in 2020 when they came back with a real vengeance. I Look, I think what they're going to be able to do this upcoming year is going to be nothing short of impressive. They have a very green but extremely talented underbelly of that team 
that is going to be able to get a full spring together, come through with the continuity, with the best coach in the game at the helm leading the way the entire time. They've also addressed certain immediate needs with picking up three of the biggest players in all of college football via the transfer portal, of course, in cornerback Eli Ricks. We're talking about Jameer Gibbs running back from Georgia Tech and the big bomb that went off the other day, Jermaine Burton from the Georgia Bulldogs. Yes, from UGA transferring to the Crimson Tide. And uh, this this really was a lot, much to the chagrin of a lot of Georgia fans, right? Um, outrage from the UGA fan base. But again, if you're looking at this from a perspective of today's elite level college player, the move makes sense for a guy like Jermaine Burton. It's a more robust passing attack at Alabama. You have an elite quarterback talent playing for you at Alabama. You're playing for Nick Saban. Need I say more? I mean, who still, despite the recent loss, is the best coach in the business. And look at the receiver talent that this school, Alabama, has produced under Nick Saban that signed fat NFL checks. I mean, welcome to modern college football at the top shelf level anyway. And I don't think a player like Jermaine Burton would have gone over that way if he didn't think that they were in a position to strike for a national championship coming into 2022. I very much like them, you know, to be very alive in the race. Duh, it's Alabama, right? But uh, just, you know, some some really interesting stuff right after the national championship game. I, I want to address that too, because both of these programs, Georgia and Alabama, have had players, had players hit the transfer portal directly after the game. I mean, um, we're in this, we're in this wild west phase of the portal of name, image, and likeness. To be honest, college football is more free and more unpredictable, if you really want to put it in terms, than professional sports currently could ever be. There are no official binding contracts that are keeping this these kids at these schools right now. They can change at any time, penalty free, one free transfer, right? But you can also graduate transfer. I mean, so technically you got two where you don't have to sit. Um, there is loose to non-existent regulations on what NIL looks like and what college teams can do with that and what boosters can do with that. And you can literally see college football programs, whole programs, be absolutely gutted overnight because of this strange existence in the sport and where the sport currently lives. We've already seen this with Tennessee. We've seen this with Oklahoma this year. I mean, we saw it with South Carolina when Muschamp was out. Now South Carolina, oddly enough, is utilizing the uh, portal to leverage their roster. More on that later in the episode. But again, the quick, the quick turn that you can see because of the current age of college football uh, for either the positive or the negative is, is stunning right now. You know, and like I said, we can also see programs get fat quickly off the talent in the portal. I mean, there are currently, as it stands, over 2,500 players looking for a new home in FBS, or I should say in all of college football, but certainly looking to probably either stay at the FBS level or potentially move up to the FBS level from one AA, HBCU, and so on and so forth. I mean, again, taking Alabama, for example, 
the portal took and it gave, right? I mean, they pick up three big time players, but the day after the national title game, there were seven Alabama players that hit bricks. Most notably of them, it would be embattled uh, player Jaleel Billingsley tight end that, you know, had some conduct issues there at Alabama, never quite really assimilated with what Nick Saban was trying to do there. And he's off to Texas to reunite with Sarkeesian, which is sort of interesting because Texas clearly had some culture problems last year, but I guess Steve Sarkeesian sees enough upside to, you know, take the chance on him. So, and, and they have, they have a, a prior working relationship as well. So since the race for 2020 has, it's already on and popping, it's, it's been nearly impossible to, to track the arms race and the personnel movements top to bottom. My, my Bleacher Report app is going crazy every 10 to 20 minutes as this turmoil unfolds. I'm getting constant updates. I'll sit there. The thing goes off in my pocket. It's insane. I'm trying to concentrate on what I'm doing, and it's just everybody and their uncle is either hit the, hit the portal, uh, considering entering the portal, hit a new team, a coach is moving here, going there. Um, you know, it's, it's insane. The biggest question on everybody's mind, of course, right now is probably likely, where is Caleb Williams, former quarterback from the Oklahoma Sooners who had a dynamic year, fresh, true freshman year uh, this past season? Where is he going to land and when is that going to be? Right now, he is the 20-foot great white shark swimming in the portal pool, and he's likely circling USC. But who knows? It's his oyster, right? I, I mean, the ball's in his court. And I really want to capture this thought for a moment. If, if, you're, if you're sitting here listening, I want you to think about this for a moment. I'm sure this is not the first mention of this. I'm sure maybe you've had this thought yourself. But can you believe how much the balance of power has shifted in the NCAA in favor of the players from just the short amount of time of what we saw you know, prior, the status quo that we saw prior to this. I think we'll delve into that on a whole separate episode, so I'll digress to the point. <clears throat> if you're completely enamored with the Caleb Williams situation, you may be missing some of the other programs that are making decisive moves right now, and maybe you pull for some of these programs, so we'll talk about it. We'll start in Baton Rouge with LSU. Brian Kelly and staff have been busy. 11 players have transferred to LSU, uh, most notably Makai Wingo, talented defensive lineman from Missouri. Kid was a three-star prospect coming out of high school, but played up to and beyond his potential. Had a very good year last year. Good enough to where he feels like he wants to play for the Bayou Bengals and Coach Kelly. So, bam, he is landed. Um, he's he's there. Uh, Noah Kane, running back from Penn State. Again, a kid with massive upside, at least early in the career, did have the injury. Kind of got derailed there at Penn State with their poor offensive line play. Absolute inability to establish a run game. I think his talents were a little bit wasted there in Happy Valley. He makes the move to LSU. Greg Brooks, Brooks excuse me, and uh, and Joe Fouché from Arkansas, uh, a safety corner tandem that just played for uh, Coach Sam Pittman, making their way to LSU. 
What I like about these pickups for Brian Kelly and what he's doing there at LSU, like immediately, is he's a, he's addressing immediate roster needs, and I, I really do feel like the vibe around the program is not a I'm going to build into this. It's a win now, compete now mentality. And if you're a LSU fan, you absolutely got to love that. Southern Cal has been raking in the talent, to put it lightly, with the latest additions of Brendan Rice. That's, of course, Jerry Rice's son, a former wide receiver from Colorado, and Travis Dye, running back for the Oregon Ducks, have both landed in L.A. You have to think that this sudden influx of offensive talent to Los Angeles, and by the way, these aren't the only two guys. They've landed some other dudes for sure on both sides of the ball, but I think it has to do with more than just Lincoln Riley landing there. It seems as if Caleb Williams gravitational pull is already affecting the roster at South Carolina before he's even officially landed there. If he does at all, I mean, who knows, you know, Jackson state still might have a, (laughs) might have some skin in the game. I mean, you know what? Nothing would surprise me at this point. And Jackson state has done a phenomenal job at snaking, top tier recruits. So I don't know. I mean, like quite literally, I, nothing surprises me at this point, but I will say this, uh, according to all the sources that I have January 28th, which is today, uh, is supposed to be the deadline to enrolling classes at USC to be eligible for spring football. Now, whether or not this is something that Caleb Williams is aware of, or he wants to continue to leverage. I mean, I'm talking about him on my podcast. So, you know, all major sports publications are talking about this kid probably incessantly right now. And from what I've been reading in articles, yes, he is the, he's the talk of the town and maybe he loves this. Maybe he and his family absolutely loved this sitting here, making a sweat, wondering where he's going to land. I have a sneaking suspicion that we're probably going to get an announcement out of him today or USC today. So don't be surprised if you see Caleb Williams basically effective immediately landing in uh, Southern Cal and uh, putting on that Trojans uniform for 2022, which will undoubtedly give the Trojans the number one overall transfer, transfer recruiting class for this year. But very interesting situation there in Southern Cal. Uh, as Lincoln Riley is a- attempting to flip a roster and build a winner, I still think that there are a ton of issues to address with, again, their offensive and defensive line. Remember, we just talked about when all things are equal. There is a great imbalance right now in the USC program. That's happened over the years, a serious lack of physical uh, physicality, a serious lack of physical identity. But again, you have to be super encouraged by the influx of talent that they are getting right now. And who knows? I think he could build something down there. I mean, it's school in paradise, so it's certainly an attractive market. Ole Miss, Arkansas, South Carolina, and Florida, they've all gone portal heavy this offseason. There have been some very nice pickups. Ole Miss picks up Ashim Young from Iowa State at safety. South Carolina, of course, landing Spencer Rattler and... Uh, Stogner at tight end. Florida has picked up Jalen Kimber, former high four-star recruit from Georgia to play at an athlete position, either wide receiver or at corner. Probably more than likely he'll play corner. 
Um, they have done this, I think, for a various number of reasons. I think the ultimate reason for all the programs obviously remains they want to win games. But what I mean by that is we see Florida in more of a rebuild total rebuild mode right now they have the 14th overall class recruiting wise in the sec currently they have the 26th overall class nationally that's what they're doing at the high school level i think coach napier understands that he needs to go probably portal heavy this cycle to put a competitive product on the field i'm not expecting that he's expecting nor the florida fan base is expecting some miraculous 10-11 win season where they're going to win the East, upset Georgia, and, and take the power balance back, if you will. But I think a competitive, not nauseating product is what the folks in Gainesville are hoping for. And I really do like some of the moves that they have made in the transfer portal to bolster that roster. I think a good Florida is good for the SEC. I think it's good for college football. Um, in general. So definitely would like to see that program get back on track. South Carolina, as I mentioned earlier, has gone heavy in the portal. I did mention Spencer Rattler, Austin Stogner, huge pickups, but also I think there's double digit players besides them that they have decided to go with to, again, bolster that Gamecocks roster. Now, South Carolina turned some heads with how they performed from an effort standpoint. But I think, again, it was the talent standpoint that was the issue there. As with Florida, it was a little bit different because they had talent, they had size, they had some speed, they had these things. I think they had a better baseline of talent than South Carolina. It just didn't translate. The effort, the culture, all that was not there. South Carolina, I think, is hitting the transfer portal heavy to literally raise the floor of their talent and couple that with how they have played from an, uh, a, an effort and a culture standpoint. And honestly, could put themselves in a pretty good position to be maybe that third, potentially flexing up to the second best team in the SEC East. I think Tennessee would probably have something to say about that, as would Kentucky. But I mean, who knows how this roster could express itself coming into this next year. For Arkansas, I think it's more they're wanting to avoid a fall-off. There has been some great momentum made by Sam Pittman and crew there in Fayetteville. Addressing immediate roster needs like that, I think, keeps the Razorbacks from devolving into the product that we saw a couple of years ago. I think it's full steam ahead. Eyes are ahead. Expectations are ahead. And they do not want to retrograde. So I think Arkansas going Transfer portal heavy in this cycle has a lot more to do with that. And I think the same for Ole Miss as well, who has been very robust in the transfer portal. Maybe their biggest talent landed is still upcoming with Jackson Dart. I want to talk about two programs really quick that have been linked by a coaching change that just happened 48 hours ago. Derek Mason, former head coach at Vanderbilt and uh, the defensive coordinator for the Auburn Tigers was hired by Mike Gundy in Oklahoma State to replace Jim Knoll there. I like this hire. I think that's a great move to avoid a lot of defensive drop-off there for Oklahoma State. Makes you have some serious questions about Auburn and what is going on there culture-wise, everything else under Brian Harson's 
program entering his second year. I think Auburn is a complete question mark, in my opinion, in the conference. I really am going to have to do some deep digging to get a feel, a finger on the pulse of what this Auburn program might be coming into this year. Ohio State, got to talk about him, have to talk about him. Hiring Jim Knoll from the uh, aforementioned uh, Oklahoma State program, right, has has really signified something pretty significant to me about how Ryan Day has taken stock and inventory of his team and potentially come to a realization, accepted some reality. As I believe the Buckeyes want to make an immediate push for a national title this year and capitalize on the talent they've assembled. But again, I think he's realized my elite offense is not enough. I need some complimentary play on the other side of the ball. I need to get right on defense. And I think Jim Knoll was a fantastic pickup as a defensive coordinator. I think his numbers speak for themselves. And he's certainly going to have a huge, huge jump in basically raw material that he's going to get to work with. I would say that because his defensive schemes are sort of complex, maybe don't disappoint yourself expecting some huge defensive renaissance this year, but give it a little bit of time, a year or two, and I think you could see some big things in Columbus. I like them to make a national championship pool this year. I like Alabama, and I like UGA to be right back there again for national supremacy. We're going to break down all these teams in future episodes here in this off season as we push further into season two of the Any Given You podcast. Hey, if you've enjoyed what you've heard here today, then please do us a favor and subscribe, follow the podcast. Five-star reviews are always appreciated. And remember, any given time, any given place, any given team, you get it here at Any Given You.